Let's open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 23, and let's look at the prophecies of Balaam. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us see them plainly and simply for the glorious prophecies that they are about your mercies and blessings and favor toward the church of the Old Testament and even extending into the New. There's basically four prophecies. Seven times Balaam uses the word parable for them. God first put a word in his mouth for prophecies one and two, in which he sought that word by enchantments. Then when he realized that Jehovah wanted to bless Israel, he set his face toward the wilderness as chapter 24 opens. He didn't seek to his enchantments, but the Holy Spirit came upon him and he prophesied even more gloriously. And then, as I mentioned in the first sermon this morning, when Balak said, it's time for you to go to your own house because you're not doing us any good, he said, well, I have one more thing to say before I leave. And he told what the people of Israel would do to the people of Moab in the latter times. And that is stated in verse 14 of this 24th chapter. The word parable means a proverbial statement, a metaphorical figurative way of speaking that's obscure. Parables and proverbs in the Bible are described as things that are difficult to understand. They're called the dark sayings of the wise in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 6 and other places. Parables are difficult to understand. The disciples knew parables were difficult to understand because in Matthew chapter 13, they asked Jesus, why are you speaking to the crowds in parables? They can't understand you. And he said, because it's not given to them to understand, which is a shocking revelation to so many. But when we have the word parable here, it helps us remember that prophetic language uses similitudes as Hosea 12.10 tells us that God's prophets spoke by similitudes. That is, they used similes, which are comparable to metaphors in presenting God's pictures of what was coming. So we want to remember that God's prophecies are not laid out in literal terms And the rule that I'm giving you right now is of the greatest importance for prophetic interpretation because the errors that have been fomented and promoted the last 150 years, such as the Left Behind book and movie series, is based on a literal approach to Bible prophecies. When the Bible tells us they are not to be taken literally. The first verse of Revelation chapter 1 It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him, and he sent and signified it by his servant John, by his angel to his servant John. To signify something means to present it in signs, not in literal language. So in the book of Revelation we find all these wild creatures and beasts and pits and chains and keys and hair like women and tails with a sting of a scorpion in them. You shouldn't be thinking M16s or something like that. It's figurative language, and so it is here. And remember that God the Holy Spirit, through Balaam, used the word parable seven times to keep reminding us that there's going to be some obscure words. Any view of the future should see the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom fully victorious. Any time that God allows anyone to pull aside the curtains and look down through time, they invariably see the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over all world empires. Right. 
the favorite chapter being Daniel chapter 7, which tells the most by showing Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then Papal Rome, or the Holy Roman Empire, or the Roman Catholic Church, then the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that here as we look at Balaam's prophecies. In time, God fulfilled everything that Balaam prophesied. So let's go to prophecy number 1. It's in Numbers chapter 23, and it extends from verse 7 to verse 10. I hope you understand already that you've read this. I have spent many hours on this 12-page outline, and I am going to skim it because I want to quit about Balaam today as we come to the Lord's Supper and celebrate the star and scepter that came out of Jacob. So I'm going to go fast, and if you have questions, you're welcome to ask them later or to wait for the outline that will be published in the next 24 hours, the Lord willing. Numbers 23, verse 7, I'll read down to verse 10. And he took up his parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. Opening words are not too good for Balak. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Exclamation point. And justifiably so. Now if anyone starts to think that see, Balaam wanted to die like the Apostle Paul and to be with Christ. God put this word in his mouth. He didn't have this word in his mouth. God put it in there. God jammed it in there, just like he gave the ass the ability to say some things to Balaam. But let's go back and very quickly look at verse 7. When we look at that verse, a parable I've already explained to you. There's many verses in the Bible that tell us that parables are obscure sayings that need interpretation. The Moabites were a bitter and long-term enemy of Israel, and they were the children of Lot. Balaam lived in a city called Pethor in an area of Mesopotamia called Aram. These things are mentioned. I remind you of them. I hope that you remember Paden Aram. It's to help you remember, where is Aram? Well, it's the northern end of the Euphrates River as you come into Canaan. If you look at a location of Jerusalem and then you follow across to Babylon, it's, just, it's through desert that nobody goes through. Especially back then. You have to go all the way around and it's about a thousand mile trip. But at the top end of the Euphrates, where Paden Aram was, and where Assyria was, the southern Euphrates, where the Garden of Eden was, is called Babel, or Babylon, because Nimrod there built the Tower of Babel, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. But it's about 400 miles away. And so Balak, the king of Moab, has called Balaam, that lived there, to conspire with him, and he would pay him to come and curse and defy the church of God. But immediately, in verse 8, Balaam says, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed, or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? No matter the power, 
no matter the sorcery, no matter the wealth that might be used against the church of God, it amounts to nothing against Jehovah. There is no wisdom, nor counsel, nor understanding against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 And many of the verses that Brother Zach used with us this morning. We may speak boldly about our safety from the devil himself because Jesus Christ is on our side and Jesus Christ has blessed us and God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ and we should always remember that no matter what the devil or wicked men might do in the world. No matter the ability or power of a sorcerer, he cannot do anything against the will of God. Verse 9, For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Now how did he get into those rocks and hills? Balak. Balak took him up, up, and up. He went up and up in altitude until he had a view of the whole nation. You can read about it here in the context. He could view the whole nation of Israel, so he's up there with a bird's eye view from some steep mountain, because they're in the plains. It told us in 22.1 that they were in the plains of Moab. It tells us that he had taken them up into the high places of Baal, so he's referencing that fact in the first part of verse 9, that he sees the nation of Israel, which is the church of God. And he says that this people shall dwell alone. Well, no, they always had neighbors. They always had strangers among them. So this is part of the parable. This is obscure language. The people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Was Israel reckoned as a nation? Was Israel a nation like Egypt was a nation? Was Israel a nation like the Moabite nation? Was Israel a nation like the Philistines were a nation? Yes. However, there is no other nation like Israel. Like there's no other kingdom like the church of Jesus Christ. That is what is intended by these parabolic words coming from the mouth of Balaam. The Bible tells us in in numerous places that, in Deuteronomy 4 is one of my favorites, verses 5 through 8, it says that the commandments that God gave Israel separated them from all their nations because no other nation had such wise and righteous laws as Israel did, and no other nation had God so close to them as Israel did. They dwelt alone. He's all by himself. We're speaking of Israel because their nation was so superior to any other nation. And that is what is is intended by these words. In Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, it tells us that only Jacob had the Scriptures of God. He had not dealt so, what are the words? With any other nation. That's what's intended here by verse 9. You know, nations adore and crave united nations for confederate power, but not God's people. We don't need confederate power. We don't need an association, a convention, a denomination, a university, or any other conglomeration of churches. All we need is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will bless and protect and lead and guide and commune with us. And so it was in the Old Testament. God's children are described in the Bible as a peculiar people above all others. Peculiar meaning the special, unique, loved children of God. That is what is intended by this ninth verse. By comparing it with the rest of Scripture and how Israel is identified as being alone and not being numbered among the nations. Because it was uniquely different that they had a God that worshipped them who was in the heavens. If you remember Psalm 115 and Psalm 135... 
the enemies of Israel would say, where is now their God? Because these pagan nations had their gods in their temples, little idols of stone and wood. But what is the answer of the psalmist? But our God is in the heavens. And that God would come down and dwell in that tabernacle on that mercy seat over that little Ark of the Covenant. And that God would go to battle with them. He would stop the sun. He would divide the Red Sea. And they all knew that Israel had a God, the likes of which they didn't have. Israel was alone in the universe of nations. Verse 10. Who can count the number, the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Remember Balaam's view. He's in a high mountain. He is seeing the whole nation. When the nation of Israel would camp, three tribes camped to the north around the tabernacle, three to the west, three to the east, three to the south. Four parts. A part of three tribes in each direction of the compass with the tabernacle in the middle. God being in the center of their national life. And so the reference is made here. You know, as I look out there and see how vast this nation is, and Balak has already confessed this when he sent messengers that to the, to the elders of Midian, if we don't do something about Israel, they're going to lick up the whole countryside like an ox licketh up the grass. Well, Balaam gets up there and takes a view of all of them. Remember whose idea it was. It was Balak's for him to get a full view of all the people. And he goes, wow, when I look out there, who can count the dust of Jacob? They're like the dust. Now, had God ever promised that to Abraham? Right. Are you with me? Had God ever promised Abraham that he would have a seed like the dust of the earth? Yep. Did he fulfill it two different ways? He fulfilled it literally, and he fulfilled it spiritually because we're here today. Amen. And we're part of a church that's in heaven that's innumerable. Right. Revelation says, And I saw a great multitude that no man could number like the dust of the earth. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? He's asking this rhetorically. No one could get a full handle on how many there are, Balak. Then he says this, Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. God put this word into him and so he gives a prophecy of the death of the righteous. I've already said this a couple of times today. The Apostle Paul would describe death as being far better than being alive here. Here, we're present in this world, in our bodies, but absent from the Lord. To be absent from our bodies is to be present with the Lord. Death is the departure of your spirit from your body. Death, defined by doctors, is a physical thing, and it's wrong. It's incorrect. Death is the spirit leaving the body. When God breathed into a bunch of clay the breath of life, man became a living soul. When that breath comes back out, life is over. All the functions of the body quit, not because of some physical property, but because the spirit's been taken out. When that spirit departs, it's with the Lord. And it's far better to be there than to be here. The Bible in the Old Testament describes death as being gathered to your people. When Abraham died, it says, and his, his sons buried him, Ishmael and Isaac, and he was gathered to his people. The chariots came down, the song, the Negro spiritual of our country, swing low, sweet chariot, and took the spirit of Abraham into heaven. Let me die the death of the righteous. Balaam here, the false prophet, 
declares because of the word that God put in his mouth. He is blessing Israel that they die blessed deaths. The Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Balaam confirms it right here. Balaam didn't have a life or death like Israel. And he is likely in hell right now. Because there isn't any evidence of him being in heaven. No matter what the situation in this life is, the future for the children of God trumps it all. And you know, when we get discouraged about our lives, it's because we have taken our eyes off of being with Christ in heaven, gathered to our people, and are thinking about finding our happiness down here on this plane. It, it confuses us, it distracts us, it deceives us, and it leads us into sin. We should love this second half of verse 10. Let me die the death of the righteous. When the righteous die, it's a good thing. Let me quote from Psalm 116 again. Precious! Precious. There's base metals like iron and copper. There are precious metals like gold and silver. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so Balaam gives testimony to that as Balak is hoping that Balaam would curse this nation and curse these people. He blesses them that even in death, they're blessed. Now that is really unusual because see, Balak is upset because he can see that the vastness of Israel and the God that's with them, they're going to lick up everything naturally in this world. But not only are they going to have dust that can't be numbered and no one's going to be able to count even the fourth part of them and they're going to dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations while on this world, while in this world, when they die, they'll be better off yet. That was just a double whammy to poor Balak. Because here Balaam is saying, they're going to outdo Moab while they're here, and then when they die, their death is going to be the death of the righteous, and oh, if I could die a death like that. But remember, God gave him those words. Balaam isn't telling you his heart's desire. That is prophecy number one. Much more could be said, but you know how fast this is going to go. I mean the time. I didn't mean me. Numbers 23 and verse 18, we come to the second parable, the second prophecy. I like this one. It switches from the third person about Balak to the second person. He addresses it to Balak. Verse 18, and he took up his parable and said, rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zipper. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt, He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. 
He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. (laughs) And Balak, stop, stop. I don't want any more curses like that. Balak has to say, but I want you to notice, this is in the second person. Balaam's now getting a, a little more confident. And he's addressing Balak directly in the second person there in verse 18. Verse 19. We often quote this verse as an attribute of God that our God doesn't repent or change his mind. I, we, that's true. But I want you to notice where it falls and what it means. What is the sense of this verse right here? This is the second prophecy. Balak has said to Balaam, well, since, since you couldn't curse them in that first location, let's go to a second location and maybe there you can curse me, these people. And so we have verses 19 and 20. They're there to tell Balak, just because we've changed location isn't going to change God. God doesn't change like that, Balak. You may change like that. Men may lie. Men may change their minds. Men may repent, but not God. So verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He wasn't lying the first time because if he said something different this second time, that would make the first time a lie. In fact, it would make the second time a lie as well because he's contradicting himself. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. He doesn't change his mind. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? What I gave you in the first prophecy is going to come to pass because God's going to do it. Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God had spoken in the first parable, and he was going to do it. Behold, Balaam is explaining, I have received commandment to bless. God commanded me with a word in my mouth to bless, and he hath blessed. First parable, and I cannot reverse it. This new location and new situation that you've put me in and seven new bullocks and seven new rams on seven new altars isn't going to change a thing. That's why those two verses are there. Now we use them. You know, we come roaring into Numbers chapter 23 and pull out 19 and put it on blogs for the glory of God that he's not like a man and he doesn't repent. But I just want you to know why it's there. And I hope it takes on a little bit more meaning that when the Bible gives us promises, God doesn't repent or change like men do. And he is going to perform his word. We come to verse 21. He hath, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. Okay, this is a parable. This is prophetic speech. Did God hold Israel accountable for their sins? Yes. Is he going to hold them accountable for their sins in chapter 25? Are 24,000 men going to die in chapter 25? Then what is understood here? That God, in his special, peculiar relationship with Israel, being among them as his people, and he is their God, has a measure of long-suffering, mercy, and patience toward them that he does not have with any other nation. That is what is intended by these words. He does behold iniquity, and he chastens for it. But there is a sense in which he doesn't behold iniquity. He overlooks so many faults of that nation. When you read the book of Judges, they obey, they disobey. They obey, they disobey. They backslide, they backslide again. Psalm 106 says, many times they departed from the Lord. Many times He forgave them. Because they were His people. And He showed them special affection 
and attention, though they, there were so many sins, in, even in the family of Jacob. Remember the twelve sons of Jacob and the sins that Jacob could list about them on his deathbed? God drove out the nations of Canaan for sins that Israel would later commit themselves. When God punished Israel and sent them into Babylon, He brought them back. You know, He says in Malachi chapter 1, let Edom try to rebuild after Nebuchadnezzar took them captive. I can't turn there. I don't have the time. Malachi chapter 1 says, God loved Jacob, meaning Israel. God hated Esau or Edom, meaning the Edomites. Israel had been brought back to rebuild their city, their nation, their temple. But he said, let Edom try to rebuild. I'll tear it down again. This is the difference that God made. He is patient and long-suffering with his people. He put it up with all that polygamy. He forgave David so quickly with David's aggravated murder and adultery. And you can go through the pages of Scripture and you see things. Why in the world did he bless Samson at the end of his life to get out of his misery and to kill more Philistines in his death than he did during his entire military career? Because God is merciful, long-suffering, and patient with his people, and it should comfort us. This is the church of God. When we are walking with God, when we are walking in the light as he is in the light, what does the Bible tell us? The blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, cleanseth us from all sin. And so Balaam is just declaring this fact about the nation of Israel, that God doesn't behold the iniquity in Jacob or the perverseness in Israel the same way that he beholds it and holds holds accountable the people of other nations. The Lord, his God, is with him. This is God's place of worship. He overlooked a great deal to keep up his temple and to keep his presence there among his people. The Lord, his God, is with him. The him that ends that clause is Jacob or Israel, spoken with a singular male pronoun. The Lord Jehovah God is with Israel. And the shout of a king is among them. You know, God is betrothed to his people. I believe that in my absence, or sometime recently, a young man in the church wanted to share with you, I believe this happened, that in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 60, there's a word nevertheless that's very meaningful. Do you remember Ezekiel 16 is the little baby, girl, thrown out in a field to her loathing. God came by, and it was the time of love, and he said, live. I know that Eric used it in uh, his particular point about vital salvation in the five phases. Then there's about 45 verses that run between verse 15 and 59 that describe this little girl growing up and becoming a woman and becoming a very, very whorish woman. A ridiculously extreme whorish woman. She opened her feet to everyone that passed by. And the Bible goes into great detail, graphic detail, because that's the way God deals with these kind of issues about the fornication and adultery of His church in the picture of this woman. But verse 60 comes up and says, Nevertheless, I have a covenant with that woman. I'm betrothed to her. She's my wife. I will take her back. The other nations of the earth? Are you kidding? He wasn't married to them. And brethren, he's married to us right now. Doesn't the New Testament teach us that? That we are the bride of Christ? And so we understand that uh, the Lord his God is with him. Jehovah God was worshipped right there in that tabernacle in the temple. 
and the shout of a king is among them. The people could worship God, and the earth would echo when they worshiped. When they bla- Solomon had 120 trumpeteers. When those 120 trumpeteers, David said, or the, 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 the descriptions are made of that 120 in the book of Kings after David with one sound. 120 trumpets with one sound is a pretty impressive sound. Yeah. And the singers would sing with one voice. And the praise would go up to God. The shout of a king is among them. You know, when a king comes out of his palace, comes out of his castle, is taken through the streets, the the people line the streets, they come together like no other time, and they shout, God save the king, or some other exclamation of their reverence and their appreciation for their king. Well, Israel did that often with trumpets announcing the beginning of weeks, Trumpets announcing the beginning of months, feast weeks, feast days, Sabbath days, and the people would sing and shout at God's goodness. David would be dancing with all his might because they had a king among them, and it was the Lord himself. Verse 22, God brought them out of Egypt. Balak, I need to remind you of something. You're just this little tiny postage stamp nation of Moab. Egypt hardly knows that you exist. But Israel was once in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt. He didn't even have to say how or what happened to Egypt, because Balak knew full well. This was only 40 years after the exodus out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. If God brought them out of Egypt, you and the Midianites are not even going to slow them down. You're not even going to be a speed bump, Balak. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. The he is not God, but Israel, with God's blessing upon Israel. Because this male singular pronoun that we've been following down through here, sometimes it's God, sometimes it's Israel. Here, it's the singular for Israel. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Have you read very much about an 8,000-pound rhinoceros? Or a 6,000-pound rhinoceros? with one giant horn coming out of his nose that's constructed like no other horn in the world? Impressive unicorn. It could very well be the rhinoceros. It could very well be a metaphorical figure, and we don't even need to know what it is, except to understand that it must be very powerful and very strong, and nothing can stop it, because that's the point of the parable. He came out of Egypt, and he hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He's already taken down the Amorites in the chapters before 22. Sihon and Bashan, king of the Amorites, kings of the Amorites. He's already taken them down. He's taken Egypt down. You're not going to be any problem for him. And it doesn't really matter that the Midianites have joined you. He hath the strength of a unicorn. And so he's going to push his way right into Canaan and trample everyone there. Verse 23, in light of that fact that God is with him, that God doesn't behold iniquity in him, that God's merciful and long-suffering to these people, that he's got the strength of a unicorn, that God has shown deliverance already by bringing them out of Egypt, surely, surely, there is no enchantment against Jacob. It doesn't matter what I do. I can't overthrow this God and his good, noble, kind, loving, blessing purposes toward Israel. There is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. You can mark your calendar, Balak. From this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? 
from this time. Do you know what happened immediately after this? They sent 1,000 per tribe and destroyed Midian. They crossed the Jordan River with God stacking the waters up from a flowing river, just piling and backing up through the Jordan. And they walked across on dry ground. When they got across, the first city they met was Jericho. What did they do? They marched around the city for six days once, and on the seventh day they marched around it seven times, and the walls fell down flat. What hath God wrought from this time? This is our God. And from the time of the cross, we are blessed. We live 2,000 years into the blessed New Testament based on better promises and a better mediator and better sacrifices than anything of the Old Testament. According to this time, this is one of my favorite little expressions here in uh, Numbers chapter 23. It's the last part of verse 23. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what hath God wrought? Well, Joshua just kept on going. The next time he was in a battle, it was starting to get dusky, and some of his archers were missing their targets, and it was just hard to see what was going on. So what did he do? He said, Lord, stop the sun. Give me an extra day for me to avenge ourselves on this enemy. And the sun stopped, and the moon stopped. What hath God wrought? Amen. And Balak's getting a preview of it. Do you know what Balak should have done? Resigned his office and moved to Egypt because it was in the other direction of which Israel was headed. But instead, how about if we try a new location? This is our God. Power, a king. Wealth, wit, quite creative to go 400 miles to find a witch to curse Israel. And then to use witchcraft, sorcery, enchantments. But like Balaam admits here in verse 23, surely there is no enchantment or divination against this nation. You can just go ahead and mark it, Balak. From this point forward, you're going to see things you won't be able to believe. Verse 24, Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion. And they did. All 12 tribes crossed that Jordan River and they took out 70 cities of the Canaanites and destroyed seven nations. The people shall rise up as a great lion. You know, I wish I could just hit a button here from a computer and spend five minutes with you about a lion, about lions just because God wants you to con- compare his church to a lion. Now we know that the devil walks about as a roaring lion. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But just doing a little bit of reading, which you can do more easily now than you ever could before, is just wonderful to understand the glory and power of this verse. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read about a lion that is four feet tall at its shoulders, do you all know how high a desk is? Do you know that when you sit at a desk, it's only a 30-inch surface from the floor? Do you know how much higher 48 inches is? And that's the shoulder of the lion. Do you know what a lion looks like that weighs 600 or 700 pounds? They've hit 826 in captivity, but just a 600-pounder. Do you know what he can do? Do you know what he looks like? Do you know that he can't go through a double-door entrance without his mane touching both sides? Do you know how glorious that is? You just think on those things and you, you just revel that God turned, what were they, a bunch of slaves from Egypt. Right. They were a bunch of slaves come out of Egypt, and now what kind of a lion are they like? Why am I talking about 600 and 700 pound lions? Because the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion, 
full of energy and boldness, not experience and wisdom. They're just going to go attack. And they did. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey. Did they quit? Do you remember the rule? Ten and a half tribes inhabited the west side of Jordan. Two and a half inhabited the, uh, the east side of Jordan. The two and a half tribes that were on the east side of Jordan had to leave their families there and come across Jordan and continue with their brothers from the other tribes until they had finished it. He shall not lie down. They will not rest or go back to their homes and sit in their front yard on a, on a rocking chair or sit under their fig tree, which is the Bible description of having the good life at home, until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Balak, that's what's going to happen. So Balak says, let's try another location. Even though, Balaam has said, there is no enchantment, there's no divination against these people, so we come to prophecy number 3. Chapter 24, verse 3. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said, which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. This is a a description that is very similar to the description he's going to have for his fourth prophecy. He's explaining that no longer was a word put in my mouth, No longer did I use enchantments, verse 20, verse 1 of this chapter, but God has opened my eyes. His Holy Spirit has come upon me. I have heard, I have heard His words while I was in this trance. My eyes were open. This was not some ridiculous dream when you're in your bed, but my eyes were open and I was taken over. I was in a trance. I heard the words of God and I saw the vision of the Almighty. Now that isn't very comforting when you're worshiping gods and someone else says that I saw a vision of the Almighty, meaning the mightiest God. And here's what Balaam had to say, verse 5. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! Exclamation point. What a great family life. What a great living in the nation of Israel. How goodly are thy tents. Spacious tents. Furnished tents. Safe tents. Children running in and out. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. It's a parable. He's describing their home life after they've destroyed all their enemies. How they're just going to have the wonderful land of Canaan called the land of milk and honey to enjoy. Here's further description. As the valleys are they spread forth. A valley is a place where water runs and you have far more prosperous agriculture than on a mountain. And so as valleys, extended valleys filled with good moisture, bearing much fruit, the nation of Israel and all their tents and tabernacles look like that. As gardens by the riverside. Balaam would have known about gardens planted near the river Euphrates. And so he had known that a water supply that's abundant results in great fruitfulness. And so Israel was going to have great fruitfulness. As the trees of line aloes, aloes, which the Lord hath planted, even in the wild, the aloe plant was esteemed a fragrant plant of the Israelites. 
And it's mentioned in several places for the precious spice that it brought to Israel, even in the wild, which the Lord planted. And as cedar trees beside the waters, that is strength. The cedar trees are what Solomon made his temple out of. They're esteemed throughout Scripture as being mighty trees. They're supplied by water, beside waters. They grow very large and very strong. This is Israel. Israel, Balak, when I look at Israel and I see their tents and I see their family life and I see their home life, I see it as being very prosperous and being very fruitful and being very fragrant and being very strong. Now watch. He shall pour the water out of his buckets. And his seed shall be in many waters. I'm just going to read a cross-reference for you to understand this parabolic expression. He is talking about the progeny. They're going to reproduce and multiply very rapidly. And that's what it means about buckets and water being poured out and his seed in many waters. Proverbs chapter 5 describes this to counteract the strange woman. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, meaning your own wife, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. When you have children, you're drinking water out of your own cistern. You're having sexual relationships with your wife only. That's what Proverbs 5 is about. And when you do that, the result is waters flow into the streets. The children that leave a home and go out to ride their bicycles or play ball in the streets. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Those four verses from Proverbs chapter 5 tell us what is under consideration here because this seventh verse rises to consider the human element in the nation, not the agricultural. We left the agricultural in the sixth verse. In this seventh verse, he shall pour the water out of it. Well, in verse 6, it's metaphors describing the families and home life. But verse 7, he shall pour the water out of his buckets. Jacob, Israel, he, this singular male pronoun referring to the nation. He shall pour the water out of his buckets. His seed shall be in in many waters. And his king shall be higher than Agag. Now Agag is going to be described in verse 20 as the first of the nations. Agag was considered to be a very high king. Agag was the title of the king of the Amalekites. We will find this name some 450 years later, again, of the king of the Amalekites, like Pharaoh is just a title of the Egyptians. His king shall be higher than Agag. You know, you can look at this as Saul, because Saul and Samuel destroyed Agag of the Amalekites in 450 years in 1 Samuel 15. Or you can look at it as David, because Saul wasn't a very great king anyway, though he did destroy the Amalekites in general, or you can look to Christ like you should, the ultimate king, that when we pull the curtains back and look down through time, the ultimate king is not David. The ultimate king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdoms of this earth, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. They're all His kingdoms, including the Amalekites. And His kingdom shall be exalted. And see, when it says that, That isn't Saul. Saul's kingdom was not very exalted. Saul's kingdom wasn't exalted. Remember, he died in a losing battle with the Philistines. David's was more exalted, but the Lord Jesus Christ is far more exalted. And again, we have to hear about Egypt. Verse 8, 
Balaam goes forward and says, God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Words taken from prophecy number two. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. That's the success that Israel's going to have against the 70 cities and seven nations of Canaan. He couched. That's to lie down flat. He couched. He lay down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to lie down and rest. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. Balaam speaks about the people of God. So that it extends not just to these blessings upon Israel, but blessings on those who bless Israel and help them. And here you are, Balak. You're trying to curse Israel. Guess what's going to happen to you? You are cursed for cursing Israel and trying to curse Israel. And so we have prophecy number three. He, his king shall be higher than Agag. Now we know a king that fulfills that better than any other king. Amen. And when you're in the Old Testament, you have got to see David and you've got to see through David because Jesus himself is called David for us to understand that the ultimate fulfillment of a king or a kingdom that's exalted was not just David's. Though God did exalt his kingdom over the Moabites, the Edomites, the Syrians, and others. But Jesus Christ has taken all the kingdoms of the earth. And right now he's ruling them and reigning over them with a rod of iron. That's why there is no world empire for the last 2,000 years. And that's why when you look at a geopolitical globe of the earth, there are hundreds of nations. Because they've been dashed in pieces by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's a king far higher than Agag, and his kingdom exalted. Well, Balaam is told to quit. Stop, Balak says, and go home. You've lost your reward. But Balaam says, I I need to tell you what these people are going to do to your people in the latter times. Verse 15, And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, which heard the words of God, and knew the knowledge of the Most High. That's new. That clause is new. Which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. Balaam has the Holy Spirit upon him. He has heard the words of God. He knew the knowledge of the Most High, which is our Lord, Jehovah. And he saw the vision of the Almighty in a trance with his eyes open. God just came upon him, overpowered him, and gave him this revelation, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. Did anyone else in the Bible say something like this? I know that my Redeemer liveth, Amen. and that in the latter days he shall stand upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Balaam is seeing the resurrection of the dead. Remember, all dead bodies are going to be raised from the ground. Not just the bodies of the righteous, but the bodies of the wicked as well. John 5, 28 and 29 tells us that. Acts 24 and verse 17, there shall be a resurrection coming of the righteous and the wicked. The just and the unjust. They're all going to get their bodies back. The righteous will have their bodies glorified and they'll spend eternity in heaven. 
the wicked will have their bodies united to their spirits and spend it in the lake of fire. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. This is similar to Job's prophecies. Balaam knew that there was a future day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, this king that is higher than Agag, being the king of a kingdom that shall be exalted, but he couldn't see him now. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him. Now this shouldn't surprise us. He's, he has already prophesied, oh, let me die the death of the righteous. He has great spiritual understanding when God overpowers him and gives him these parables to speak. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is highly exalted and God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess and every eye will see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, including Balaam. Including Balaam. I shall see him, but not now. It doesn't say anything about him wanting to see him. It doesn't say anything about him rejoicing that he's going to see him. This is not like... John chapter 8 and verse 56, where Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. There's no joy here. This is just stating a fact. I shall see him. All the wicked are going to be humbled to the ground before the Lord Jesus Christ in the great day of judgment with their resurrected bodies. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Who is the bright and morning star? the Lord Jesus Christ, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Who sits and reigns with a rod of iron right now? His scepter. The scepter of his kingdom is righteousness. Hebrews chapter 1, Psalm 45, the Lord Jesus Christ. And shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken all the kingdoms of the world and he's going to deliver them all up to God. And he's taken them by his gospel. When we go over to Acts chapter 15 and the Apostle James describes the conversion of Gentiles as the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9, that's the kingdom of the Edomites being taken and possessed by the gospel where men have fallen on their faces before the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipped Him actively. David smote the Moabites. Oh yes, indeed. That was 450 or 500 years after this particular prophecy. But the Lord Jesus Christ has also smitten all the kingdoms and nations of this earth and ruling over them and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel is dashed in pieces according to His testimony. And the gospel has gone into all the world. There was just this little tiny nation of Israel that the Bible says in Deuteronomy 7 was the smallest of all nations. But Jesus Christ pronounced a prophecy in Matthew chapter 16 that upon this rock I will build my church, meaning the testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil was bound up from deceiving the nations like he once did and the gospel went into the four corners of the earth and men of all nations, Moab and all the sons of Sheth, referring to Seth, referring to the line of Adam, that survived the flood, because no one else did, Jesus reigns over all. Praise the Lord. The star and scepter coming out of Jacob and Israel. Verse 18, And Edom shall be a possession. 
Esau and his descendants, Jacob, will take possession of their kingdom. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. Seir was an important place in Edom. And Israel shall do valiantly. There would be men that would do valiantly in Israel, whether it be the Maccabees delivering Israel from the Seleucid remains of the Greek Empire, or whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles turning the world upside down with the gospel, or the Lord Jesus Christ in the end crushing all his enemies of every nation and sort. This is a prophecy from Balaam to Balak of what's coming for him and his nation. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. They had a great city. It is mentioned in Psalm 60 and verse 9. And it sounds like this over there. Psalm 60. Moab is my washpot, saith the Lord. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of me. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? And see, that's in the Psalms. That's written by David. That's 500 years after this prophecy where God gave Balaam the future vision of Edom and its great city Seir, and Israel shall do valiantly, and out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. And that was certainly David in a limited sense, but it's in a far greater sense, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall destroy him that remaineth the city. There are no enemies. They will not be put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last enemy that shall be put under his feet is death itself. That's four parables in quick succession, 5, 6, and 7. Verse 20. And when he had looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, you know, there in that high place, he moved his vision from Israel over and looked at where the Amalekites dwelt. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations. The first of the, the first of the desert nations in the immediate area surrounding Israel. Because when you go back and you look, the nations began in, and the kingdoms of nations began in Mesopotamia with Babel. But this is speaking about the area that Israel was going to dominate. Amalek was the first of the nations. But the latter end shall be that he perish forever. That's the prophecy. So simple, so short. Israel is going to overthrow and destroy Amalek, which they did with Saul and Samuel, then with David, and Hezekiah made the last of them. Recall recorded in your Bibles. Verse 21. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place, and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. It reminds me of the conies of Proverbs chapter 30 that say they make their nest in the rock and protect themselves that way. Well, this particular group, a warlike tribe of Midianites that were in the area called Kenites, and some came out of the Kenites like Jael, whose husband was a Kenite, and we can read about them. Nevertheless, they thought that they could be protected by making their houses way up in these mountains on the east side of the Jordan River. But here's what Balaam has to say about them. In verse 22, Nevertheless, the Kenite shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee away captive. You think that you're safe in those mountains? You're going to be wasted until you're a weaker and weaker and weaker nation. Then Assyria is going to come along and haul you off and displace you and other nations of the world. Verse 23. And here's his last seventh parable. 
And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? Exclamation point. Well, what does this seventh parable have to say? Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? Who can survive a God that is going to turn empires upside down? One verse. Verse 24. Ships shall come from the coast of Chittim. If you study the word Chittim and the location of Chittim, it was specifically in the beginning, Cyprus. But then God gave it a meaning to extend to all the islands and the coasts of the Mediterranean Sea that extended west that Israel did not know anything about in their early days. In the book of Maccabees, it is applied specifically to Greece and Macedonia, the coasts of Chittim. In Daniel chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, the ships of Chittim carried the Roman ambassadors that confronted Antiochus Epiphanes at Alexandria, Egypt, and drew a circle in the sand around him and said, you will surrender before you step out of that circle. And he surrendered. This is all in Daniel chapter 11. Because that that ambassador from Rome intimidated him because he knew the Romans could defeat him. And so he went home, and the Bible tells us this in Daniel 11, he went home to the Seleucid Empire in Syria, north of Israel, very angry. But to go from Egypt to Syria, you have to cross through Israel. And that is when he violated the temple and desecrated it. All recorded in the Bible, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11. And there, Chittim is referring to the Romans. Do you know how many times you have in the Bible, like the Isles of Chittim and the Isles of the Sea? What do you think they were talking about? The Hawaiian Islands? Is that what you think when you read the Bible? The Hawaiian Islands? They only knew about one sea, the Great Sea. And what was the Great Sea? The Mediterranean Sea. Israel is at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. They did not know what lied greatly to the west because it wasn't developed yet. Those goat herders from Macedonia weren't the great Greek empire yet. First there was Assyria, then there was Babylon, then there was Persia, then there was Greece and the Macedonian. This prophecy is just fabulous. In one little verse, you've got Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 has those four beasts, the last beast being the Roman Empire. He's got ten horns growing out of his head because the Roman Empire degenerated into the ten nations of Europe. And then a little horn came up, which was the papacy of Rome. And then the next king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a little tiny vision of it right here. He has already introduced the star and scepter that will come out of Jacob and out of Israel. And he says in verse 24, after this exclamation point, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? If you Moabites and you Midianites think that you can escape the upheaval of nations that God's going to bring, let me share this with you. Who shall live when God doeth this? Rome's going to come. Rome's going to come. Ships shall come from the coast of Chittim and shall afflict Asher. Moab was nothing in comparison to the Assyrian Empire, which was succeeded by the Babylonian Empire. Assyria was not taken down by ships. There is a succession that you have to understand here in this parable. Assyria was taken by Babylonian by land. Its capital was at Nineveh. The Babylonians took it. This is a conglomerate of the Eastern Empires and the Western Empires. 
The first empires were from the east, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. The next two empires are from the west, from Chittim, Macedonia, and Italy, Greece, and Rome. The ships from Chittim, the ships shall come from the coast of Chittim and shall afflict Asher. The Assyrian Empire was overthrown. The Babylonian Empire was overthrown. The Persian Empire was overthrown in succession. And the ships that came from Chittim, the ships that came from the west, first bearing Alexander the Great of the Macedonians, and then the Roman Empire afflicted Asher. And then look what it says in very disguised language, fit for a parable, and shall afflict Eber. Who in the world is Eber? Eber. You go to Genesis chapter 10, and you find out that Shem was the father of all the children of Eber. Something about Shem is to be emphasized that he had children of Eber. Do you know what Abraham was called? The Hebrew. The children of Eber. The Hebrews. Shem, Abraham are connected by a man in the middle that the Bible identifies as Eber. Shem is made important by the fact that all the descendants of Eber are his children, and Abraham is called Abraham the Hebrew from this Eber. And here we have Eber. Did the Romans have anything to do with the children of Eber? Did they destroy the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? See, this wasn't Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great favored Israel and didn't touch them. This is the Romans. Ships from Chittim. But notice what it says next. He also shall perish forever. Who's he? The Romans. Oh, Lord! Balaam, the Lord pulled back the curtain. I heard the words of the Lord. I had the knowledge of the Most High. I had a vision of the Almighty. And when he looked down through time, he saw a king greater than Agag, a kingdom that was exalted. He saw a star and a scepter come out of Jacob and out of Israel. And that extended so far into the future that he has an empire coming from the west, the Macedonians and the Romans, to overthrow the Assyrian Empire that was still hundreds of years away of even coming into existence as an empire. But then he shall be destroyed. And you know what the Bible says? Do you remember from Daniel chapter 2? And I close here. Please, you know, last week was short. Do you remember Daniel chapter 2? A great image. A gold head. Babylon. Silver shoulders. Medes and Persians. Brass. Greeks, iron legs and feet mixed with clay. Was there something else that appeared? A stone cut out without hands that grew until it filled the earth. How many kingdoms does it leave out when it fills the earth? None. And it smote that image in the feet and it all collapsed and was driven in, was driven like chaff by the wind into the four corners of the earth. When, when Jesus Christ hit that image in its feet, all the others are still looked at as existing in a succession that was represented by Rome at that time. And you know what Daniel 2.44 says, don't you? In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. 
And we find in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, John the Baptist came preaching the message about the Lord Jesus Christ. My brethren, there is a king on earth, and the kingdoms of this world are his kingdoms. Amen. And the kings, of, the kings of this world that have understanding tremble before this king. And the kings of this world that don't have understanding, he takes them and mocks them in derision. Psalm 2. Ships shall come from the coast of Chittim, and shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber, and he also shall perish forever. The Roman Empire, pagan and papal, overthrown by the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives forever, the star and scepter of Israel. Since that didn't work, all those blessings upon Israel, Balaam wanted his paycheck, so he did what I taught to you this morning. He told Balak, get your women to come and offer sex for the Israelite men to worship with them and go to their church, and God will be angry, and he will punish Israel. And he did. 24,000 were killed, but one man stood up. His name was Phinehas, and he stopped the plague. So the nation went on into Canaan and did everything that God said they were going to do. May God bless the preaching of his word. Amen.